This evening we finish our series on the book of Lamentations. We are examining the final chapter of this poetic masterpiece, namely Lamentations chapter 5. Now we want to begin by examining the form of the chapter and noticing that we have 22 verses, which is the number of the consonants in the Hebrew alphabet. But in this case, namely in the case of chapter 5, we do not have an acrostic. That is, we do not have the verses beginning with a sequential letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So chapter 5 is non-acrostic. In the Hebrew text, you do not see the sequence of Aleph to Tal that we've seen in the other chapters. That's the first significant difference about this last chapter with respect to its appearance in the original Hebrew. Now, in the second place, chapter 5 is the smallest chapter of the book. Now, this is because there are 22 lines of Hebrew in this chapter, meaning there is one line of Hebrew per verse. But there is not one line of Hebrew per 22 consonants, 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, because it's a non-acrostic chapter. Now you compare the 22 lines of of the Hebrew text of chapter 5 with the 66 lines of Hebrew in chapter 1, at three lines per verse, or three times 22, and of course chapter 1 is the initial acrostic chapter of the entire poem. So there is a significant diminution from the number of verses in the opening chapter, and the number of lines in the opening chapter, to the number of lines of Hebrew text in the last chapter. Now, you may recall that chapter 2, synonymous to chapter 1, also has 66 lines of Hebrew at three lines per verse, as chapter 1 had three lines of Hebrew text per verse. Only one of those lines would be the acrostic line in each of the 22 verses, but there were still three lines of Hebrew as the Biblia Hebraica places the text on the page. Chapter 3, with its 66 verses, also had 66 lines of Hebrew, but this time three lines per letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the acrostic feature was tripled here. Each letter of the Hebrew alphabet in alphabetical sequence 
had three lines beginning with the initial consonant. Now, last time we noticed that chapter 4 departed from that previous pattern of three lines per verse. There are only 44 lines of Hebrew in chapter 4. We didn't discuss that at that time. I was holding that off until this evening. 44 lines of Hebrew at two lines of Hebrew text per verse. Which brings us to chapter 5, which we've already indicated is the smallest of the chapters in the book. 22 lines of Hebrew at one line per verse. Now, the interesting thing about that is that when you reach chapter 3, the sequence of 66 lines and three lines per verse or three lines per letter, as the case is in chapter 3, is repeated sequentially. It's symmetrical. When we get to chapter 4, the symmetry of the number of lines is diminished as are the number of lines per verse. So something is winding down in terms of the poet's expression of the drama in the whole book. And when we come to chapter 5, he signals that something is winding down in a rather dramatic way. He breaks his acrostic pattern and abandons it completely. He leaves out the acrostic feature, which has been so integral to the previous four chapters, and he uh, diminishes the lines of Hebrew to simply one line per verse. This law of diminishing returns, so to speak, this law of the declining ebb of the poetic expression, so to speak, with a final chapter which is the very opposite of the acrostic poetry of the previous four chapters. That pattern is significant. The poet, Jeremiah, has done something suggestive here. And it bugs the daylights out of the commentators to try to figure out what he's doing. Chapter 5 of Lamentations is perhaps the greatest head-scratcher chapter in all of the Bible. Because no one knows what to do with it. And I'm not going to solve the dilemma this evening. I'm going to make some suggestions. But it is a very interesting feature when we begin to look at the form, at what he has done and then what he does here, at how he has structured and what he does here, at how he has arranged in mirror patterns and what he does here. In other words, if... As I believe, the book is inspired by God the Holy Spirit from the mind and pen of the prophet Jeremiah. He is doing something intentional, which says something about what he wants to communicate, which says something about what this book wants to communicate in its last stanza, so to speak, its last standing chapter. Now, the liberals have a field day with this chapter because they say, aha, 
you see, it's different than the first four chapters, has no acrostic feature, therefore is written by somebody else. The same person could not have written a non-acrostic final chapter. Now, that is really intelligent, isn't it? You mean, you have to get a Ph.D. to make an asinine statement like that. What do you mean the writer couldn't have broken his pattern of acrostics and written something different? What if he wanted to do something different, and so he wanted to write it differently? Isn't he allowed to do that? Oh, no, says the level. He has to follow our fundamentalist pattern. You want real fundamentalists? You go check out the liberals. They are fundies of fundies. They are literalists of literalists. Well, something, let's take the Sherlock Holmes approach. Something's afoot here. Huh? The game is up. The game is afoot. Something is going on here. Okay, Dennison, what is it? No, 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 not so fast. Not so fast to keep you on your toes as long as I can keep you in suspense. All right, now, <clears throat> number three. There is no chiastic imagery in this fifth chapter as there were in chapters one, two, and three. Now, we noted that there was no chiastic imagery in chapter four. Chapter five follows that pattern of no chiastic mirror. However, chapter 5, in following the pattern of chapter 4, breaks rank with chapter 4 on the absence of the acrostic feature. So, if he's abandoning the chiasm, he's abandoning the chiasm in a doubly important way because he's abandoned the acrostic. Twofold reason to, to suspect that something's up. Okay? Finally, number four, there is no parallel symmetry. There is no parallel symmetry in chapter five from one verse to another or from one verse to the last. At least for the first 18 verses. Now, I'm going to make a case for verses 19 to 22, the last four verses of the chapter, having a symmetrical pattern. But the first 18 verses do not. They are asymmetrical. In other words, he has abandoned the symmetry that he has used in the previous chapters entirely. Conclusion. This is an entirely unique piece of Hebrew. It catches you by surprise in terms of how different it is. It stands out in terms of its singular uniqueness. It is without parallel in the book of Lamentations. There is no other chapter. <laughs> there is no poetic, other poetic sequence like it. It is, to use the French term, non parallel. It is without parallel. Now, <laughs> that means 
it is a very different piece of Hebrew, a very different piece of writing, a very different piece of poetry, a very different piece of theology, a very different piece of biblical theology, a very different piece of poetic narrative, biblical theology. It is different. Well, why? Now, once again, patience, my children, patience. All right, now, Jeremiah is doing something different in this chapter that he hasn't done in any of the other chapters. What that is is yet to be revealed, at least my suggestion as to what that is. But let's take a look at the chapter and see if there is any apparent structural pattern. After all, we not only talk about the form of the literature, the form of the pericope, the form of the text, that is, how it appears on the page, but we look for patterns which indicate the structure of that form. Has that form been intentionally structured or patterned? So let's scan our eyes over chapter 5, running our eyes down the 22 verses, and let's see if anything jumps out at us. When you're looking for structure, you're looking for recursion. You're looking for reiteration. You're looking for replication. You're looking for duplication. You're looking for repetition. Those are all synonyms. So, does anything jump out at you? As you cast your eye down, Bob? Well, this reminds me of Psalms where I can use that phrase, what is more? That, like, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers. What is more, our homes to foreigners. That is true. There is the what is A and what is more than A, B pattern here. That is correct. But that is also true of all of the other chapters of Lamentations. I'm looking for something that is unique to Lamentations 5. After all, we've indicated that in terms of the Hebrew language and pattern, the form of the Hebrew, this is a unique chapter. Yes, very good. Is it that the first ten verses start with me or our? Hold on to that, please. Okay, she's noted the use of the first person plural pronoun. We are our art. Did you have your hand up? Asking about content or structure? Structure. I'm asking about structure. Yes, go ahead. I noticed the word more. Where do you see it? Very good. You get an A plus. You're learning. You're learning to look for structure from me, Arthur. Very good. I commend you. Verse one and verse nineteen. And twenty-one. Verse twenty-one. Yes. All right. Now. Art has put his finger on the one structuring element that appears repeatedly, in fact, in triplicate. It is the vocative, O Lord. Okay? When you say, O Lord, you're using the vocative case. You're calling upon God. It's a, it's, 
<clears throat> so, you see that in the translation of verses 19 and 21, perhaps in your version. You don't see it in verse 1. Yes, you do, if you have uh, the New American Standard. I forgot that it's, it's there in all three cases. Okay. It's the vocative case, <clears throat> O Lord, and <clears throat> it forms a pattern. We have it in verse 1, we have it in verse 19, we have it in verse 21. In verses 1 to 18, what's the dominant personal pronoun? Mary Jo? It is the first person plural pronoun. We, us, our. That's the dominant personal pronoun. Now, in verses 19 to 22, what's the dominant personal pronoun? Second person. Second person. You. Which separates on the basis of pronomial use, separates verses 1 to 18 from verses 19 to 22. Now, there's something else that sets those two sections apart. You will notice in verses 19 to 22 that the O Lord vocative occurs symmetrically. It occurs in verse 19 and then it doesn't occur in verse 20. It occurs in verse 21 and then it does not occur in verse 22. So there is a symmetry of the vocative in verses 19 to 22. This is not an inclusio. This is a unit defined by the vocative. In other words, the vocative defines, the vocative, O Lord, defines the first unit, verses 1 to 18, and the vocative defines the second unit of chapter 5, verses 19 to 22. Supporting the fact that the vocative keys those two sections is the predominant use of a particular pronoun. We, us, and our, first person plural, in verses 1 to 18. You, second person singular, in verses 19 to 22. The you always being God himself. All right. We've broken the chapter down into its structural units. We have those units defined on the basis of the initial vocative. And in the case of 19 to 22, the subsequent parallelism. I want to firm that up later on in verses 19 to 22. There's more there than just what we pointed out in the, in the vocative parallel or symmetry in 19 and 21. But nonetheless, for our purposes right now, uh, we have we have discerned the larger units of chapter 5. There are two of them. Verses 1 to 18, part 1, and verses 19 to 22, part 2. Chapter 5 is structured in two parts. All right, now, let's go back to the first verse and examine the language that is found in that verse. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our reproach. What kind of language is that? 
Pardon? Well, it's maybe called imperative, but it's beseeching. It's? Beseeching. Beseeching. Very good. Can you say that another way? Do you do it every day? Prayer. Marge? I think I heard somebody say it. Prayer. Prayer, yes. This is the language of prayer. Now, in order to confirm that, take back, take a look at Psalm 132, which is on your outline. This is the easiest place to see it. In Psalm 132, verse 1. If some of you have a Bible that has a header there, you can even see it in the header. But... Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf. That phrase, remember, O Lord, is exactly the same as the remember, O Lord, in Lamentations 5.1. And you'll notice that Psalm 132 is a prayer for the Lord's blessing upon the sanctuary that David longed to build. So that's also similar in Psalm 25 and Psalm 89. But the Psalm 132 passage is the strongest representation of this exact similar pattern. Beginning a poem, a poem, and Psalm 132 is a poem, beginning a poem with this invocation, praying to God. Remember, O Lord. Yes, it is an imperative art, you're right, but it is an imperative of prayer beseeching, prayer pleading. So what we have in verses 1 to 18 is the language of prayer. Prayer coming from us. Prayer coming from we. Prayer coming from our. Prayer coming from the corporate voice. The corporate voice, the we voice, the us voice, the our voice, the corporate voice invoking you, Lord, or O Lord, you, the imperative with the you understood. It's explicit in verses 19 and 21. All right, now what do I mean by the corporate voice? We've talked about the dual voices in this book, in this poem, from chapter 1 on. We've talked about the voice of the poet-prophet. We've talked about the voice of Jeremiah, which is the voice of the suffering man in chapter 3. We've talked about the voice of the author as a narrator, and we've talked about the personified voice of the city, namely Lady Jerusalem. We've described this book as unfolding in terms of an expression of dual voices. What do we have in chapter 5? We do not have dual voices. We have corporate vo- a corporate voice. We have the voice of we, us, and our. We have the voice of the suffering man and the suffering lady, the suffering city. We have the voices joined corporately in the first person plural pronoun. It jumps out at you as you go through these first 18 verses. Chapter 5 is the corporate voice of both 
previous narrative voices. And that has never occurred before in the book. Those voices before have been distinct. They may have overlapped. They may have come very close together. One voice may have been speaking for the other. But here, both voices are speaking in concert. We, that is, Jeremiah the suffering man, we, that is, the personified lady Jerusalem who is suffering as well. We, O Lord, ask you to remember us and our reproach. The suffering characters are joined here. In this fifth chapter, the suffering characters are united here. They are incorporated mutually into one another. So that, as we examine this chapter, we realize that that is one additional feature of its unparalleled uniqueness. The two voices have become one. Not one voice speaking for the two, but the two voices speaking in concert. Well, about what are they speaking? The first verse tells you what they are speaking about. They are speaking about their reproach. And that is what the rest of the 17 verses, that is verses 1 through 18, that is what the rest of those verses are going to detail. We are going to read through in verses 2 to 18. We are going to read through a review summary of the reproach of 586 B.C. Isn't that what you do when you write the conclusion to an essay or to a story or to an article? You tie up the previous discussion. You summarize or review what you have done. That is what the poet is doing here. Now, how does he do it? You will notice that he uses the element of reverse paradigm. He's not going to go back over the details of all of the tragedy of the suffering that came upon Jerusalem and upon himself as he witnessed it, weeping over the city in its destruction. He's not going to go back all over the details. He's done that in the first four chapters, and he's done it sequentially. Here, he's simply going to summarize it by way of review, but he's using the element of reverse paradigm. What do I mean by that? Notice in the second verse, which Bob already read to us, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our houses to aliens. The reverse paradigm. They've been disinherited. He summarizes then the tragedy, the destruction, 
and the just punishment of Jerusalem and Judah by reversing their heritage. They've been disinherited. They've been rendered homeless because of their iniquity and because of their injustice and because of their vile immorality and because of their refusal to heed the word of God. The reverse paradigm has fallen upon them, a paradigm which was threatened against them as far back as the blessings and cursings of Deuteronomy 28 and following. So they have reaped the reversal which was prophetically placed over against them if they disobeyed the law and will and commandments of the Holy Lord God. Verse 3. They become orphans, reverse paradigm. They're fatherless. Their mothers have become widows, reverse paradigm. They're husbandless. Verse 4. They have no money for necessities. They don't have any money for water or wood. In other words, They've been disenfranchised. They have no means of economic survival. Water, obviously, a basic necessity. Wood, a basic necessity. Yes, for cooking and heating. They have no economic resources. Reversal of the abundance of the promised land. Now penury, poverty, and starvation. Verse 5, they have no protectors. Reverse, they're exposed to oppression. Verse 6, the challenge. Egypt and Assyria. We have submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. What does the poet mean? We have submitted to Egypt and Assyria. This baffles all of us, to be quite frank. There is a plausible explanation. But what does Jeremiah have in mind as a review summary of the tragedy of the destruction of Jerusalem by saying we have submitted to Egypt and Assyria? to get enough bread, to get enough to eat. Is he looking all the way back to the captivity of of Israel in the days of Moses and the slavery of 1400 B.C.? That's pretty remote, a little too remote for what Jeremiah is dealing with in his immediate context. And what about Assyria? Assyria is gone. Syrian empire has been destroyed. If this is 586 BC, when did the Assyrian empire bite the dust? When did Nebuchadnezzar and his father Nabopolassar destroy 
Asher, and Nineveh. 612 B.C., fall of the Assyrian Empire. It's been over 20 years, nearly 30 years, that Assyria has no longer been a nation, no longer been an entity. What is the poet suggesting here? Well, the plausible explanation, though it's not completely successful, is to argue that Egypt and Assyria were places of exile. Jeremiah would be taken down to Egypt forcibly after the remnant was carried off into Babylonian captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, Jeremiah was allowed to remain, and some of those Am Ha'aretz, the people of the land, as it said in Hebrew, some of those people of the land forced Jeremiah to go with them down into Egypt, a place of exile for those that survived the devastation of 586 B.C., but going the opposite direction from the Babylonian troop. All right, that's plausible. It's a reversal of habitation. It's a reversal of a place where there's no bread and they go down to a place where there is bread, namely Egypt. But what about Assyria? Well, of course, Assyria was a place of exile as well. If Egypt is a place of exile for what's left of Judah in 586, then Assyria was a place of exile for what was left of Israel in 722 B.C. Is it conceivable, then, that the poet is referring to Egypt and Assyria as places of exile And to those places, the exiles who went down to Egypt and who went to Assyria, went out with Assyria, that's how they got bread. That's how they survived. It's not completely satisfactory. It places almost 150 years between 586 B.C. and the Assyrian conquest of the northern kingdom in 722, But I have nothing better to offer. The liberals have an easy solution. It's just dead wrong. It's a mistake. No, it's not a mistake. I'm just too stupid to get it, and so are they. Or he's thinking in categories that we don't get. We haven't grasped. You could argue that he's referring to the call for the Egyptian army to come and relieve the siege on Jerusalem, which they did do. Zedekiah called on the Egyptians to come and pull Nebuchadnezzar away. Nebuchadnezzar did lift that siege in 586 and went out to face the Egyptian army, and they turned tail and ran. So it doesn't fit. Nobody went down to Egypt on that occasion to get bread because the Egyptians never got through and relieved the siege. So that doesn't fit. And Assyria 
Assyria hasn't been around for over a hundred years. It's the best I can do, but, eh, Denison, you're weaseling here. Well, quite possibly I am. <clears throat> and if you have a better suggestion, I'll be glad to entertain it. Yes, David. I don't know that my suggestion is better at all. And uh, we'll have all the Christmas break that we be to recover from your time to live off that I'm doing for a while. The height of poetry is reserved for Israel and Judah. And Jeremiah gets kidnapped down into Prosaic, Egypt. If chapter 5 was written either later or the uh, Jeremiah was forced to go to Egypt, um, the uh, detriment in poetical style is a metaphor for those events. I like your suggestion about Egypt. What are you going to do with Assyria? I won't show. I won't saw the limb off yet. But you're halfway to the ground. <laughs> no, that's a that, that's a good, uh, rather eloquent description of uh, the, the nature of the poetic muse, shall we say, or gift. Um, I, 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 I'll give you the Christmas break to come up with an equally uh, prosaic one for Assyria. Did uh, Art, were you eager there? Uh, Not at all. No, okay. Anybody else want to rec uh, risk their reputation? We don't have much of one anyway, so you don't have much to risk. It's all right. We're among friends. Okay. This is a tough verse. Okay, it really does stymie everybody because it looks like it doesn't fit the historical context. So I give you my suggestion for what it's worth. I'm going to, I'm going to quickly round this off before we take the break. Verse 7, our fathers have sinned. It is we who have borne their iniquity. The reversal here seems to be that the suffering of the children for the father's sins is unjust that is justice has been reversed but you must remember verse 16 verse 16 says woe to us for we have sinned the balance there between those two expressions is there's no injustice because the sins of the fathers had been visited upon the children because the children practiced the sins of the fathers they did the very sins that the fathers did so it's not unjust for them to be punished for the sins of the fathers because they're doing exactly what the fathers did sinfully. If you imitate the sin of your fathers and your fathers are judged for those sins, can you expect to escape judgment if you practice the same sins? I don't think you do. And you'll notice that that confession is here. So whether they may have been screaming Foul ball in verse 7, they are confessing we deserved it in verse 16. And that's the balance of that matter in the second commandment, visiting the sins of the fathers upon the third, second and third generation. 
It's not as if those second and third generations are sinless. They're not. They're imitating and practicing and imbibing and acting upon the same sins that the fathers did and therefore receiving the same judgment that the fathers received. God is saying, I'm going to visit judgment for sin if the fathers commit that sin and if the children imitate the sins of the father, I'm going to visit judgment upon the children. The sins of the fathers to the children and from one generation to another, I'm going to visit it. Ben, you had a question? Comment? My Bible is a reference to Hosea chapter 9 verse 3 where Egypt and Assyria both listed yeah, now in Hosea, we can understand why Assyria would be there, right? Because Israel, Hosea is prophesying before Israel goes into captivity in 722. Uh, with respect to Egypt, He may be specifying that Egypt is like Assyria in that it is a country of exile and bondage. So there's no indication that before 722, the Egyptians were capturing any of the northern kingdom of Israel. So you've still got a little problem there in Hosea, but it's a lot easier to explain that Hosea 9.3 verse than it is to explain this one. Or are you going to port over the same interpretation here to Lamentations 5-6. There may be some connection. Now, um, it's not obvious to me because the time frame and the historical circumstances are different. Unless he's forgetting himself here in Lamentations in 586, 200 years, well, almost 200 years after the fact of Israel's de- uh, <laughs> conquest and exile, unless he's forgetting himself and going back to that same kind of pattern, hmm, I don't think. But, you could twist my arm. I might be persuaded. Well, that's a good thought. That's a good thought. Would you think he might go all the way back to Moses for Egypt? Okay. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Good. I'll have to think about it now. And... We'll think about refreshments. So you can ponder that over the break. Now, resuming with a few more of these passages uh, in verses 1 to 18. Verse 8 is lamenting the slaves that rule over uh, Judah, The other parts of the scripture specify that these were servants of Nebuchadnezzar, of course, Babylonian lackeys of the king. The reversal here is that the freeborn Jew has been reduced to slavery again, but in his own promised land. So the lack of liberty has been sacrificed as a result of this collapse of Jerusalem and Judah. The lack of bread in verse 10 is behind the 
uh, imagery, the skin has become hot as an oven because of the burning heat of famine. Skin becoming dried and withered, uh, the reverse of its uh, condition in health. And so starvation and uh, the lack of any uh, good water, as we noted before, has deteriorated or reversed the health of those who lived in a land of milk and honey. All right, now, as you conclude this sequence, in verse 18, you come to this final statement of lament in the book as a whole. This is the last lamentation. Because of Mount Zion, which lies desolate, foxes prowl in it. The desolation of the city of Jerusalem is the end point of the review of the reproach which has fallen upon the city on Mount Zion and the nation of which that city was the queen or capital. The reversal of this city teeming with life, now abandoned, desolate, the haunt of jackals, and foxes. The image of desolation stands out at the end of the poem. The concluding remark of the laments, the reproach which has been brought upon the city of God, that beautiful capital with its temple glory, been reduced to ashes, it's leveled to rubble, and the only thing that lives in it is the prowling foxes. From the wilderness, looking for carrion, looking for whatever they can scrounge out of what's left. Verse 19 changes gears. So I want you to notice that radical contrast between the end of the downward spiral review, which ends up in the desolation of this solitary city, How lonely sits the city. Verse 1 of chapter 1. This city sits lonely in chapter 5, verse 18, because there's no one in it except foxes and jackals, the carrion eaters of the animal world. That's the, the image of desolation with which the book ends. All right, now with that in mind, that we've been brought through the review of the desolation in terms of these reversals from verses 1 to 18 of chapter 5. What about verses 19 to 22? We've already noted that these four verses are set apart from the rest of the fifth chapter by the use of the second personal pronoun. They're also set apart by a duplication of the vocative, O Lord, in verse 19 and again in verse 21. These verses are different in terms of what we can see on the page in front of us. But there is more, what we cannot see. Page two of your outline, the Hebrew text here is symmetrical. For the first time in chapter five, we find symmetry. It is not symmetry of acrostic or 
initial uh, uh, word or letter of the verse. It is a symmetry of the number of words in a line. Verse 19 is composed of three Hebrew words followed by four Hebrew words. A three plus four word kola or line. Seven words altogether in verse 19. In the Hebrew text, verse 20 has three Hebrew words followed by three more Hebrew words. A three plus three word kola, six words in the Hebrew text. Verse 21, which also has, you will notice, the vocative, O Lord, has the same sequence as verse 19, three Hebrew words plus four Hebrew words, a three plus four word cola, seven Hebrew words as were present in verse 19. And then verse 22. Verse 22, three Hebrew words followed by three more Hebrew words, two of which are in a construct state in the Hebrew, which means that they are hooked together as one. The second and the sixth word in the Hebrew text of verse 22 are in the construct stage. So, construct state. So that means we have three plus three, even though it looks like we've got three plus uh, five. No, we've got three plus three as we had in verse 20. Therefore, the pattern of verses 19 to 22 is symmetrical. The same number of words is present in verse 19 and 21. The same number of words is present in verse 20 and 22, including the construct. Notice also how verse 19 stands in contrast to the tone of the whole poem. Yahweh sits Olam, to eternity. Your English translation, uh, O Lord, you rule or sit forever. Forever is literally in the Hebrew, Olam, which means to eternity. Chapter 1, verse 1. Lonely sits the city. The same Hebrew word, Yashav. The same Hebrew word that is used here in verse 19 for God sitting on his throne is used for the city sitting alone. That is a dramatic change in tone. We have changed from reviewing the misery of Jerusalem's collapse to now looking to God's throne. At the end of this, of this book, at the end of this chapter, we have switched from the desolate city where foxes prowl to the throne of the city of God, eternal and forever in the glorious heavens of his everlasting habitation. Now you understand, in part, why he has done what he has done. He has not used the acrostic in order to draw attention to the uniqueness of what he's saying here in this chapter. He's not used symmetry until he comes to that part which is outside of the grief and sorrow of the lamentation. 
And then he brings symmetry back into his paradigm. <clears throat> he is not talking about that which uh, <clears throat> is negative and destructive and uh, <clears throat> horrible and bloody. He's changed his imagery entirely to God's own throne room. He is drawing the reader out of the misery of the destruction of Jerusalem. He is drawing his listener out of the desolation that lies upon that city of David. He is drawing his audience elsewhere at the end of this lamentation. He is drawing his audience to eternity. He is drawing his audience to everlasting dimensions, to eternal dimensions, to forever dimensions, to as it was of days of old, in length of days, everlasting length of days. That's another Hebrew synonym for everlasting or eternity. In other words, the end of this book is eschatological. He is drawing his readers into the arena of eternity, not the arena of destruction, not the arena of rubble and carrion and dead bodies and raped women. No, he's drawing you in to a world where all of that has passed away. The world where God sits on his throne in glorious holiness, perfect righteousness and everlasting rest and peace. Now, notice how the lines fold out in a literal translation. I've placed it there so that you can see the symmetry line by line. O Lord, you to eternity sit. O Lord is in parenthesis in the second line because it's understood. O Lord, throne your to generation and generation sits. Notice what Bob pointed out earlier There's an A, what is A, and what is more than A, B, eternity, and generation to generation are synonyms. In other words, generation to generation is talking about eternity. You sit, in in the first part, you sit where? Your throne is that place upon which you sit. So we have this symmetrical pattern even within the lines of that verse. And if you look at that verse in comparison with verse 21, you once again see the vocative, O Lord. There you have, O Lord, restore us to you and we are restored. O Lord, renew our days as of old or before. Once again, as of old or before is as of old to length of days everlasting. That is an eternal dimension in the Hebrew idiom. Verses 19 and 21 are talking about the eternal dimension of God's eternal dwelling place. At the end of this poem, Jeremiah lifts us up to the throne of God where he's seated in everlasting glory from generation to generation as it was from everlasting length of days. All right, now, verses 20 and 22 are then left for us to grapple with. Notice that verse 20 consists of two interrogatives, two questions. The lines end with a question mark. 
Why us forget to everlasting? There's the eschatological pattern again. Why us forsake to length of days? In other words, the poem, the poet is asking the question, O Lord, in view of your eternity and your everlasting throne, why have you forgotten us? Why have you forsaken us? He's asking the question. The desolation of the city is in front of him. He's asking the question of God. And that brings us to verse 22, which is perhaps one of the most difficult verses in Hebrew to translate in the whole Old Testament. Most of your versions translate it as a declarative. Even or although, or even if, rejecting us, you have rejected, or although, even if, understood, because it's not the ki'im in the Hebrew there, is not in the second line, it is in the first line, angry against us to exceedingly, or abundance, that is, exceedingly angry against us. Now, if there is symmetry in verses 19 and 21 with evocative, O Lord, and the being drawn into the eternity feature of God's own throne room and his dwelling place, then the question in verse 20, or the dual question in verse 20, are related to that eternal longing. And if there is symmetry in 19 and 21, and verse 20 and 22, as you know, are symmetrical in terms of the Hebrew three-word plus three-word kola, then is verse 22 actually a question as well as verse 20? My point here is... If there is symmetrical parallelism at the end of this poem, and verses 19 and 21 demonstrate it categorically, no question about it. The O Lord is duplicated. The eternity feature is duplicated. It's there. Well, then, the difficult verse 22, may it be translated in parallel with verse 20 as a dual question. Duplicate interrogatives. I've given you an alternative suggestion there on your outline. Verse 22 as an alternate translate, translation. Have you rejecting rejected us? Have you been exceedingly angry against us? Making it a question. Parallel to the dual questions in verse 20. Now, the fly in the ointment here is that this Hebrew clause Ki'im, which you see after Lamentations 3.32, is not translated as an interrogative in the book itself. Back in verse 32 of chapter 3, that Ki'im is translated for if or even if he, that is God, causes grief. Or is it a fly in the ointment? In other words, that Ki'im in verse 22 could be translated even if with the sense of a question, a rhetorical question. Even if you have utterly rejected us, O Lord, restore us. Even if you are exceedingly angry with us, O Lord, renew us. Is that what he's doing? Is this very difficult Hebrew structure actually parallel 
so that verse 19 and 21, which are obviously symmetrical, and verse 20 and 22 are symmetrical as well by way of interrogative question. The leading questions that are being asked in the light of the devastation and with respect to the contrast of eternity. Whether we solve the translation difficulty or not, it is worth considering the fact that the poem ends up with symmetry, with parallelism, with duplication, and with a form which looks exactly alike in the case of sequential verses. In other words, he hasn't forgotten his symmetrical parallelism. He brings it back at the end with this staccato of eschatology in verses 19 to 22. David? Well, before you mentioned it, I read over it, and I, it was my observation that these were rhetorical questions that demanded a no uh, He hasn't rejected them forever. The Judah I think, it, I think it's a very helpful solution to a, a potentially difficult translation problem. <clears throat> Was there another hand up? All right, now, <clears throat> let's try to pull this all together. The suffering man and the suffering lady, personified Jerusalem. The suffering man and the suffering lady, these two voices are now incorporated as one in chapter 5. The corporate voice of both. So that they speak of we, us, our, a joint unity at the end of their suffering. Their plangent, frenotic, dolorous suffering. Their corporate plea is found at the end of their singular descriptions and plaints. No dual-voiced proclamation, protestation, confession, no narrative voices, no two narrative voices as in chapter 1. No two narrative voices merging ever so closely so interchangeably as in chapter 2. No one voice, as in chapter 3, naming itself the sufferer for both previous voices, one vicarious voice in chapter 3, one intercessory voice in chapter 3, one suffering servant voice for both voices in chapter 3. 
and no one voice, as in chapter 4, matching the one voice of chapter 3, but without, that is in chapter 4, without the vicarious and without the eschatological voice of the man of sorrows. Now in chapter 5, in a unique and poetic non parallel dual voices incorporated. Dual voices as one. Corporate voices intoned with prayer, recounting the reproach of prophet, poet, and ravaged city. Corporate voices uniting in conclusion. So singular a conclusion. So unparalleled a conclusion. Corporate voices united in verses 19 to 22 in the poignant, vocative, O Lord, O Lord. At the end of suffering, at the end of devastation, at the end of misery brought by sin, at the end of monarchy, at the end of temple glory, at the end of pain and blood and starvation and death, at the end, O Lord, O Lord, corporate voices looking to God the Lord, beyond suffering, beyond pain, beyond the wages of sin, Lord, Lord, beyond suffering, beyond pain, beyond the wages of sin, Lord, Olam, God, the Lord, to eternity. Corporate voices, suffering man and suffering lady, embracing the Lord God to eternity. The eternal the eschatological Lord God whose throne rests, sits in eternity beyond suffering, beyond pain, beyond the wages of sin. These two voices, these dual narrative voices of lamentations united as one in chapter 5 incorporated into you, O Lord, joined to thine, O Lord. Corporate voices, we, us, our, praying to be drawn to thee, O Lord. We together, man of sorrows, lady of sorrows, we together praying for incorporation with Thee, O Lord. O Lord, we pray out of our joint suffering, individual and general, out of our joint suffering, personal and popular. We, O Lord, pray to be incorporated into, joined unto, seated with You, La Olam. Seated, joined, incorporated, O Lord, yours, yours, 
your possession to eternity. Your possession forever. Your possession to length of days everlasting. Together we, O Lord, in our corporate voice, Son of Man and people of God, we pray, O Lord, for that eschatological incorporation at the foot of the throne upon which you sit and remain forever and ever and ever. Draw us, O Lord, we pray, into your eternal throne room, into your everlasting dwelling place, into that eschatological city, New Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem, Jerusalem above. Draw us, we pray, there where there is no more sorrow, there where there is no more threnody, there where there is no more plangency, there where there is no more death, not anymore forever. And in this day of our Lord, 2015, we raise our corporate voices out of the fullness of the times. The incarnation of the eschatological poet-prophet, the veritable eschatological Jerusalem, the once and for all man of sorrows, the very Son of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, who incorporates into himself the people of that suffering city, the population of Lady Jerusalem of the eschaton, an eschatological population in an eschatological city. We raise our corporate voices to our Lord Jesus Christ, who himself incorporates both voices of lamentations and at the end of the history of redemption incorporates both into one. One Lord Jesus Christ. One Lord Jesus Christ who has suffered as the eschatological suffering man, who has been wounded and bloodied as the eschatological people of God. The Lord Jesus Christ, he has finished suffering and blood and death, for he sits enthroned la'olam, to eternity in an eschatological Jerusalem of no more death and has gathered at his footstool. He, the precious Son of God, has gathered at his footstool all the souls of that elect lady Jerusalem forever and ever and ever. To which... We are invited to say, Amen. Amen. Any questions or comments? Let's bow in prayer. We have drawn our minds through the portraits of a city burned and scorched 
destroyed and leveled to rubble, death, despair, starvation, violence, and violation. We watched the parade of the desolate Lady Jerusalem and the tears of the poet Jeremiah as they had rehearsed the dual narrative voices of this majestic poem. The two stories reflecting one another, overlapping one another, being drawn into one another vicariously, being reflected by way of substitution, but still lying in ashes. O Lord, we cry unto Thee that out of that throne where Thou dost sit, Thou wilt send upon us the light of that glorious age to come in Him who is the very incarnation of the two voices of this poem. He is the man of sorrows. He is the Israel of God that populates the eschatological Jerusalem. They are His possession. They are in Him as He is in them. They dwell with Him face to face, for He has borne their sorrow. He has taken their bloody death. He has borne their wounds and insults. He has been ostracized and oppressed. He has been hated and rejected. So that they may be accepted and welcomed. So that their deaths are not in vain but have been translated into the bosom of Abraham and lifted up to a city of gold, four square, where before his face, who is the resurrection and the life, there is no death. Not to all eternity, not la'olam. And so, O Lord, we thank you Once again, as we have been reminded of the wonderful grace that has come to us in the fullness of time, the anticipations, prophecies, projections, reflections of it that are present even in the Old Testament scriptures, and most of all for him who is the very life of it, his life in which and in whom we find life to eternity.
bless us in this Christmas season, that we, O Lord, may be even more profoundly thankful, wonderfully rejoicing, O Lord, as we call upon you, being drawn into that eternal city by that eternal suffering servant who has put an end once and for all to our lamentations. And so we thank you, praising you, O Lord, in the name of your precious Son, Jesus, our Savior, by whose Holy Spirit we walk until we see thee face to face. Amen.